Good morning again, everybody. Ooh, you can hear me good and loud now, can't you? <clears throat> uh, well, well, he was the man that people in the hallways wanted to avoid. As a matter of fact, when I started working um, at my uh, first real job out of college, there was a, a man there that I was warned you wanted to avoid at all costs. And he had no intentions of being liked by anyone. He was a supervisor there. And he not only didn't care if you liked him, but he thought the best sort of state you could keep your employees in was a complete state of anger all the time. And if he could keep you right on the edge of quitting, he thought that was the right place. Now, a coworker of mine, actually he was a mentor, told me about him, and, and that same mentor, he kept a poster in his office, and it said this, uh, there was a man, this is a far side cartoon, you see the, the torturer coming into the torture chamber, and the two men saying, good morning, Mr. Johnson, as nicely as they can with the caption, the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> that was sort of the attitude, it felt like, in that place. To go on from there, he was actually so unlike that people refused to take CPR lessons because they would feel some more responsibility to help the man if he was dying. <laughs> Maybe you've worked with someone like this. Maybe you've worked for someone like this. Unfortunately, the issue is not unique to unbelievers. As a matter of fact, there was... Uh, a call, not only the Bible, to, to bear with one another in love, but to forgive each other. And we, we tend to, you know, we've, we've heard a lot from missionaries this morning. We, we tend to think of them as, you know, the people we put on the pedestal. They're human beings too. And two men went out to find out what is one of the biggest, biggest problems that missionaries face. What do they really need prayer about? Two men, Cedric Johnson and David Penner, they surveyed 55 North American Protestant missions agencies with more than 100 staff members, the number one issue that missionaries needed prayer for was their relationships with other missionaries. Now again, maybe you know someone like this, a person in your life that, man, they are just really hard. They're really difficult to deal with. As a matter of fact, maybe somebody that you're dreading seeing again and, and interacting with again. Maybe they've given you insomnia, but you're going to see them again. Maybe it's at school, maybe it's at work, family reunions, maybe church. For you, there's going to be no getting around it. And what I want to talk about this morning was how do you deal with difficult people? By the way, understanding full well at times we are the difficult people. And the passage I want to look at this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll look at verses 1 through 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 18. And you're going to see a very sharp contrast in this passage between what a good relationship looks like, where you'll see doses of love and humility, and then you'll see a very, very negative relationship, uh, one that's earmarked by <clears throat> envy and fear and anger. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. 
When David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan and David became bound together in close friendship. Jonathan loved David as much as he did his own life. Saul retained David on that day and did not allow him to return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David, for he loved him as much as he did his own life. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with the rest of his gear, including his sword, his bow, and even his belt. On every mission on which Saul sent him, David achieved success. So Saul appointed him over the men of war. This pleased not only all the army, but also Saul's servants. When the men arrived after David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women from all the cities of Israel came out singing and dancing to meet King Saul. They were happy as they played their tambourines and three-stringed instruments. The women who were playing the music sang, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This made Saul very angry. The statement displeased him, and he thought, they've attributed to David tens of thousands. But to me, they have attributed only thousands. What does he lack except the kingdom? So Saul was keeping an eye on David from that day onward. The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he prophesied within his house. Now, David was playing the lyre that day. There was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul threw this spear, thinking, I'll nail David to the wall. But David escaped from him on two different occasions. So Saul feared David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul removed David from his presence and made him a commanding officer. David led the army out to battle and back. Now David achieved success in all he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how very successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he was the one leading them out to battle and back. You may be seated. We're seeing major transitions in the, in the Jews, the people of God, the Israelites, moving from a time of being led only by God himself, a theocracy, to a time of judges. And now they're moving into this time of kings that will prove very troubling for them. They'll constantly be pressed on who will they put their faith in, these kings or on God himself. We're seeing another transition, and we're seeing a contrast between two very different men in this passage, between Jonathan and his father Saul. As we talk about the passage this morning, this subject of uh, dealing with difficult people, we're seeing a man, David, he's where he's supposed to be. He's slaying Goliath. He's giving, being given the accolades of the people. But now he's having to endure the rage of a madman, coupled with the love of that very madman's son. So this morning, we'll look at things this way. First, we'll see humility displayed in this relationship with Jonathan and David. Then we'll see envy displayed in the relationship with Saul and David. And then we'll talk about how do I deal with difficult people. There's some great principles here for us uh, to glean from um, as we go out and we ourselves deal with, with challenging people. So first of all, I want to look at this humility that's being displayed. And we'll see the impact that it has. And we see this relationship that Jonathan has with David. Now, it's, it's easy to glance over the deep meaning of this passage, and you, you don't want to miss it. See, Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the prince. 
You could say he's the heir apparent. But at the same time, um, he also believes this oracle from Samuel that David would be the next king. He gets it. And he's not threatened at all by David. It's so unique. If anybody in this story had a reason besides Saul to be really upset with David, it would, it would be Jonathan. But he's not. It says that God had knitted their souls together. That's a, that's a way of saying they were in league together. They had common goals together. They, they were looking out for each other. And we have this hard, fast friendship and the motivation of Jonathan, again, was love and humility. So much so, we read it there in verses 3 and 4, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, what's going on there? This is a symbol of handing the kingship over to David. He's acknowledging it. Again, he believes that that oracle, that prophecy from Samuel is true, and he's honoring it, and he's handing him the kingship, giving him these items, and he's motivated by this love and this humility that he has. Trusting God 100%. See, these are key ingredients to any good relationship. It could be a marriage, it could be a friendship. They need strong doses of both of these. Jonathan is submissive in this. He's humble. As opposed to trying to be controlling and manipulating the situation. See, control is what happens when someone is trying to be God in the life of someone else. And it can pop up in any relationship uh, and oftentimes through control uh, people are trying to get their own way. They, they don't trust the other person. And this can happen in relationships so often. I came across a story of a, of a physicist who actually, through his relationships, he began to understand his need for God. He was an atheist. <clears throat> but he describes himself, he says, I'm a scientist, you know, a rational person. I've never seen much need for God. He said, all my life I've felt in charge and in control. I've been extremely successful and made it to the top. If there's a problem at work, I call a meeting or write a note to my secretary and it's quickly resolved. But he said, nothing seems simple or easy at home. Um, he said, my children don't relate to me easily. They can accuse me of trying to control their lives. When I walk into this, the same room as my son, he said his son would start to stammer. And what hurts is they can't seem to appreciate how much I care, and I'm doing all this for them. <clears throat> but he goes on to say, but I tell you one lesson I've learned. I always said that since I had my children's best interests at heart, they'd be glad for my direction. My children have taught me the hardest lesson of my life, that I'm not in control over what matters to me most. He said, it's funny, but it's now when I see I'm not God, that I see I need some help. The question of whether there is a God has finally started to matter. The success that Jonathan and David are having starts with a willingness to submit to God and his plans. 
and handing things over to David. So maybe you need to back off of a spouse. Maybe you need to back off of a child, <clears throat> and maybe a friend. Because we see this humility that's being displayed in this relationship between Jonathan and David. But then we see this sharp contrast that happens. We see this envy that's displayed. And look at verse 12. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Again, we have this spirit. We've talked about this before. The ruach is how you would say it in Hebrew. It's an evil spirit that says God has sent. It could be a demonic kind of a force. It could be a, a state of mind. It's this place that Saul is in. He's a man in a civil war with himself. He's being tormented. We've got this contrast now between son and father, between Jonathan and Saul. Jo Jonathan's motivated by love and humility. Saul is motivated by fear and envy and anger. He sees the people now elevating David as this superior warrior that David has killed his ten thousands. Saul's only killed his thousands. And he's feeling threatened by that. He sees his son maybe loving David more. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to try to kill David with a spear. And then Saul, later on, down in verse 25, he'll try to indirectly kill David again. He's about to give David his daughter's hand in marriage. David said, well, I don't have any bride price to give for your daughter's hand. And then Saul came back and in verse 25 said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He tries to kill him directly, then tries to kill him indirectly. I'm assuming this isn't something the Philistines are just going to give up. <laughs> so this is the fruit of the fear and the envy that it will kill any relationship. And if this is an ingredient in any relationship you're in, it's going to be the death of it. Uh, I teach a marriage class from time to time. And the very first night we talk, we talk about what are the killers in a marriage. And there's 13 of them, but four of the top five, notice the theme here. One, you fear your partner. You have a fear of the one to whom you're married. Secondly, you feel afraid in the relationship. Maybe you're not exactly sure why you feel afraid, but you feel afraid. Your partner tries to control you, and your partner is hyper-jealous. These are relationship killers. And if you recognize them, you need to do something about them. Find out why your partner is afraid. Now, even in this kind of a setting where it just seems so wrong, this is happening to David, he's where he should be, God is still working out his purposes. If you look down at verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So even through all this pain and misery, even though David is 
Somebody's making attempts on his life. God is still working out his sovereign purposes. God is still using David to cleanse the land of these Philistines, which is what his original command was in the beginning to these Israelites. So what kind of person are you enduring? What kind of relationship, and I hope it's not as bad as this one, are you having to endure? So then, how do you deal, how do you cope when you're in a bad relationship? And, and I want to be clear, I want to lay some groundwork here, because I think this is maybe the first question we need to ask is, well, why are you in such a bad relationship? I'm certainly not talking about staying in an abusive relationship or one where you're just absorbing um, abuse uh, all the time. You know, David's going to end up leaving the court. Uh, and, and I hope that if you're enduring any kind of abuse, you reach out and get some help. Uh, you can call the church. We can guide, if, you're in a, if it's in a marriage, we will help you um, get help in, in an abusive relationship. Uh, we'll get the ball rolling anyways, but perhaps you're around someone, at least for now, you just can't get away from this person. And maybe it's at work, family, wherever it may be. So first of all, I want to suggest four ways here. First of all, I want to suggest that you need to understand people. You need to understand people. At least human nature. And I think if we set expectations at a biblical place regarding those around us, we're less likely to be disappointed by them. And our expectations of unbelievers should be different than that of believers. As a matter of fact, Paul makes it clear. This is from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Now notice what's going on here. Notice what it says. He says, don't associate with them if they are a brother and act this way. See, this has to be qualified. Not to include those who are not of the faith. Why? Because why wouldn't they act this way? Don't judge people outside the faith for acting out who they are. We shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. They have not agreed to our moral code. They don't agree to the same body of scriptures that, that we do. See, David Lee, interesting, he understood that his job was to come into this court and his job was to play the liar. Uh, and it was to calm Saul down because... Again, Saul was this man who basically was in a civil war with himself. And uh, he was angry, and now he's feeling threatened. And, and he was threatened he was going to be supplanted by someone that God was with. So I don't think David was necessarily surprised by Saul's behavior. Uh, and, and I'm thinking about what many of you may have endured as you tried to care for a family member or someone who... I was agitated all the time and, and maybe wasn't with themselves and for whatever reason that may be and you, you took, stuck by them to take care of them. But how should people in our culture behave if they don't believe their main goal is to please God? 
And maybe they're seeking comfort and power as their primary gods with potentially no moral guidance, let alone guidance from the Holy Spirit, who's supernaturally cleaning up the life of the believer. And understand that people in past cultures, in biblical times like we're talking uh, about um, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, these people were barbaric. And there wasn't a police force to come to their house. There wasn't a gun hidden under the bed. There were no locks on the doors. How would you have dealt with it then? So we need to have some understanding of people. Just a realistic expectation. Sometimes I think we're very fortunate that society is as civil as it is. And in addition to understanding people, we need to understand ourselves. We need to understand ourselves. David, again, understood he had a role to play in serving in the king's court. He knew he'd been anointed. He knew that he had an important role. He understood that he didn't have all the answers. He knew the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he went back to shepherding for a time to await further instructions. But we also see later on that this man, after God's own heart, is going to do some really rotten stuff. Interestingly, some of the very same things we see Saul doing. Because, see, you and I have to keep in mind that one of the most ironic truths about trying to understand ourselves is our actions many times are ununderstandable. I love it that uh, Sam brought up Romans 6, 7, 8. It's a fascinating few chapters in the book of Romans. When you see Paul having this rhetorical conversation with himself trying to understand, why do I do the rotten things that I do? As a matter of fact, in Romans 7, 15, it says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Man, I can relate to that. Understand that for the Christian, we are dealing with this problem of indwelling sin ourselves. We don't come to faith in Christ, and we're immediately made made perfect in such a way that we no longer have to deal with sin. We absolutely have to deal with sin. We're going to deal with it until God finally takes us home and resurrects our bodies. And we've got this baggage that we bring into our relationships. Chad Cowan, unfortunately, brought a lot of baggage to First Baptist Church that you all are going to have to deal with. I'm sorry. It's just true. But you all brought your baggage, too. And we have to bear with each other in love. So we need to understand this about ourselves. Keep that in mind. And then thirdly, practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. It's something we're commanded to do in Ephesians 4.32. Before we talk more about what forgiveness is, I do want to mention what it's not. Forgiveness is not when you stay in an abusive situation. And it could be a marriage, friendship, family, relationship of any kind. Um, if it's happening at school or in the home, again, you're not loving the abuser by allowing them to continue to do what they're doing. Um, they need confronted, maybe not by you. Maybe you need to tell a parent or trusted friend to help you get out so you don't further endanger yourself. If the abuser's part of the church, then we need to exercise church discipline. Uh, you've confronted them either by your screams or maybe your bruises, and then someone else does, and finally the entire church confronts that person. So that's not forgiveness. 
staying in an abusive situation. But what is forgiveness? It's when you don't hold the offense against someone. Uh, it's freedom from having to hold grudges and give people silent treatments or seek revenge. It means not having to give your spouse um, the cold shoulder. And see, God said vengeance was his. And remember back in Romans 7, you and I do things we don't want to do, even when we don't realize it. And there was an article that actually appeared in the Gospel Coalition talking about the activeness of forgiveness. It's about an attitude of forgiveness. And the article said this, that forgiving is active. To forgive is to decide not to hold something against another, regardless of what he or she has done to you. It is effectively an act dying to self. Don't be surprised when it hurts in a relational conflict. It is often the most real way to demonstrate love. It's also attractive to both believers and unbelievers. To die to self, we need a motivation more steadfast than our good intentions or fickle feelings. Just as Jesus' walk to the cross was intentional, grace-filled, and motivated by obedience to God's will, so too should our efforts to forgive be intentional. We shouldn't make our efforts to reconcile contingent on how we feel today or the circumstances we find ourselves in. So it's an active choice that we make that we're going to not treat this person as though they've done some harm to us. It doesn't mean you put yourself back into an abusive situation, but you are not in your, you are choosingly, actively choosing in your heart not to harbor this against somebody. If they're a Christian, confront their sin. If they're not, give them lots of grace as someone void of the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And then finally, Trust God's reverse returns. Trust God's reverse returns. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you what it means, and then I'll, I'll give you some examples from the Bible. It means that the more God's enemies resist his will, the more success God's children experience. The more God's enemies resist his will, the more success God's children experience. Those who set out against the servant of God only provide more success to them. Here's some examples. You may remember the story of Joseph's brothers who got insanely jealous of him, so they sold him to some Egyptians, and they, they took him off into a foreign land. They, Joseph went through all kinds of horrible things while he was in Egypt, but at the same time, it says in Genesis 50, 20, he finally said this to his brothers, as for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many people, as you can see this day. That was the mean by which God got the Israelites out of a, a famine. And then there was a Pharaoh in Hebrew, in, um, among the Hebrews, that he oppressed them. He was fearful of them. He was greedy. So he enslaved the Israelites there in Egypt to control their population growth. But that only exacerbated the problem. It says in Exodus 1.12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And then he said, well, we'll commit infanticide. He commanded these Hebrew midwives to kill children when they were born. But the Hebrew midwives resisted. It says the people increased and became even more numerous. It happens in other places. It's, it's culminated in the crucifixion of Christ. This is the biggest reversal against the opposition of man. Jesus was opposed by everybody, the Jews, the Romans. And yet in the middle of all that, he provided the greatest means of grace. And nobody would have seen Christ hanging on that cross and pointed to him and say, this is the will of God. And nobody may point to your situation and say, this is the will of God, that you have to endure this difficult person, this difficult situation. 
that God works incredible works through these difficult situations and these difficult people. And maybe a better way to look at somebody, and this came from a, a priest, is don't say that person bothers me. Think that person sanctifies me. So in conclusion, putting this all together, see difficult people as part of God's ultimate plan. Part of God's ultimate plan. I want to share a brief story in closing uh, from a man by the name of Dr. John Perkins. And um, he was the founder and leader of uh, Voice of Calvary Ministries in Mississippi. Uh, one night after a, a protest, he was arrested, taken to jail, and he was beaten horribly uh, by some, some police officers. At one point, he was stabbed, he was kicked, he was stomped, he was coming in and out of consciousness. He said he could see the looks on his attackers' faces. He said they were twisted with hate. He said they looked like white-faced demons. And then this was also, though, a turning point in his ministry. This is what he says about that moment. He said, for the first time, I saw what hate had done to those people. These policemen were poor. They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like somebody. When I saw that, I just couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you will let me get out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. There were students that watched, watched over him through the night in that jail cell. He came out alive. He said, I had a new call. My call to preach the gospel now extended to whites. See, we're called not to vengeance, but to overcome and transform our oppressors. Whether that be a government, whether that be co-workers, whatever that may be. And even though Saul set his course and wouldn't allow himself to be deterred, David was faithful to what God placed before him. God was with David. And as Christians, we bear testimony to God's grace as we live out his purposes, enduring what he calls us to endure. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you have called us to great purposes. And God, some of us here I know are suffering in what feels like an unbearable situation with an unbearable person. And Lord, I pray that we would not forget what you went through to buy our salvation. Lord, help us to remember our own faults. Help us to set the right expectations with other people. Give us the strength to forgive. And let us not forget that you're working your eternal purposes and successes for your children through the pain we're going through right now. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're in need of prayer this morning, please don't hesitate to come up and pray with myself or one of the other elders. Otherwise, have a wonderful day and you're dismissed.